0: Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. Thanks to the racist photo on Virginia Governor Ralph Northam's medical school yearbook page, the nation is engaged in another halting conversation on race. One man pictured is in blackface, the other in KKK garb. The former, a dehumanizing stereotype the latter a symbol of domestic terror against African Americans. Conversation with Brian Stevenson, founder of the Equal Justice Initiative and the visionary behind the powerful Memorial for Peace and Justice, also known as the Lynching Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. Hear him talk about social justice, racial justice, and how the history of racial terror lynching still casts a pall over American life right now. Brian Stevenson, thank you very much for being on the podcast and for having us down here in your offices at the Equal Justice Initiative here in Montgomery, Alabama. Thank you. It's great to be with you. So before we get to the reason why we're actually down here, I want you to define a term that you see when you go to the Legacy Museum, when you go to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and that is racial terror lynchings. Do I have that right? Yes, that's right. So what we're talking about
1: are lynchings that were designed to terrorize people based on their race. And I think popular culture, we have a notion that lynchings were what happened when someone was hanged. And of course, lots of lynching victims weren't actually hanged, Uh, they were drowned, they were beaten to death, they were shot, they were burned alive. And so when we talk about lynchings, we're talking about a category of crime committed by groups of people And racial terror lynchings uh, are murders, crimes, committed by groups of people of African Americans to terrorize the African American community. Uh, There was mob violence, there was frontier justice in many parts of this country where there was no functioning criminal justice system. If someone did something violent or broke the law, uh, a group might come together to exercise punishment against that person. And in that respect, you would see white people hanged, you'd see other kinds of people hanged, but they weren't trying to terrorize the community. It was typically for a a well-known violent crime around which there was some group consciousness that someone had to be punished. Black people were typically lynched in communities where there was a functioning criminal justice system. Uh, There was no need for frontier justice. And in fact, hundreds were pulled out of jails and courthouses to be lynched and these lynchings were violence directed not just at that individual but at the entire african-american community black people were lynched for things like walking too close to a white woman for uh, asking for better wages for preaching equality and these violations these social transgressions would be something that could get African-Americans lynch, and that wasn't true for anyone else. So when we talk about racial terror lynchings, we're talking about uh, the racialized violence that was directed at the Af- Af- directed at African-Americans following emancipation to reinforce racial hierarchy, to reinforce white supremacy. Uh, they were designed to terrorize uh, these bodies uh, would sometimes the bur- battered bodies would be dragged through black communities, and
0: I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that because it wasn't j- hanging the the person wasn't enough. That's right. You, they they were after hanged, shot, some burned, and as you were about to say, dragged through dragged through the streets and particularly through black communities. Yes, it was uh,
1: really quite graphic. It was quite torturous, and sometimes people would be castrated or their fingers would be cut off, and this violent, torturous mutilation of the body, uh, shooting the corpse a thousand times, cutting off parts of the body, selling these parts as souvenirs, posing with the body uh, as if uh, there was something to celebrate in this barbarity. Uh, Sometimes uh, someone would be positioned near the hanging body, and would not allow the black family or black church or black community to come and claim their loved one. They would insist that it hang there for three or four days to terrorize more people. Uh, there are counts of um, lynchers tying the body to a vehicle and driving through the black part of town, and if black people went inside and closed their doors, they'd actually force people out of their homes to see these corpses uh, dragged through the streets. And in that sense, it was terrorism. I think when people characterize the violence that we're talking about as a murder or even as a hate crime, they're not adequately appreciating the scale of
0: it. Yeah, and even after your description just now, hate crime seems incredibly puny yes. compared to what you've just described. Well,
1: that's and, and it's the reason why, in this country, after 9-11, we didn't say the people who perpetrated that act were criminals. Uh, we don't treat them like criminals. We said they were terrorists. They don't have the rights that people accused of crimes have. They've been held in spaces. Uh, the courts have not given them the same protections. And uh, we don't typically go to war in response to crime. We have gone to war in response to terror. And no one thinks uh, that the perpetrators of that horrific act were just trying to kill uh, the people working in uh, the World Trade Towers. This was designed to terrorize our nation, uh, to cause all of us to feel uh, fear and insecurity. And that's what terrorism does, and that's exactly what was happening to African Americans uh, from uh, the end of Reconstruction until um, the 1950s. Uh, And it's why this kind of violence
0: uh, requires particular attention. In talking about terror and terrorism and the fact that you had people watching these lynchings, in some cases up to or more than 10 thousand people we've seen pictures of people posing smiling underneath a lynched person where's the accountability for those people who were in those photos who watched what happened is there any way to hold them accountable, even in, a, in, in some moral
1: sense? Yeah. Well, I think it's a really important question. I mean, I think, Jonathan, you've gotten to the heart of why we're trying to do what we do. You cannot engage, participate, look the other way uh, in the face of this kind of spectacle violence and go unharmed, go unchanged, uh, you know, white families would bring their small children and they would lift them up so they could get a better view of this human being being burned to death, this human being being tortured, this human being being mutilated. And the psychic trauma, the scarring, the injury that does to a, to a normal, healthy human being uh, can't really be measured. And when we don't express that this is wrong and when we don't hold people accountable, what we do is we create a relationship to these black people that suggests that their victimization is not the same as the victimization of other people. When you hurt black people, when you batter black people, when you beat black people, it's not a crime, it's not bad, it's not even immoral and that consciousness is i think at the heart of what is so troubling about our silence about this history you know i make the point often that the people who perpetrated these racial terror lynchings weren't the ku klux klan they didn't cover their faces this wasn't done in in the middle of the night they could have buried the bodies underground Uh, to mask this violence, but instead they did the opposite. They lifted these bodies up. They invited the whole community to come and participate. They sometimes served lemonade and deviled eggs as refreshments while this torture was taking place. And they acculturated communities into accepting this kind of brutality against black people. And the legacy of that I think is quite tragic. So accountability for me is at the heart of what we're trying to do. We can't go on, we cannot pretend that something really destructive, something really uh, corruptive happened when communities came to celebrate this kind of violence. We have to talk about it. We have to acknowledge the wrongfulness of it. I think we would benefit as a society if we expressed our shame about it and everybody was complicit. Uh, not just the people who literally showed up and 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 hanged the person or shot the person or drowned the person. It was all the elected officials who stood out of the way. It was the federal government who did not intervene despite hundreds and hundreds of requests that there be some kind of intervention. It was law enforcement. And um, the tragedy of that terror, which is still felt in communities today, you know, older people of color come up to me sometimes, And they say, Mr. Stevenson, I get angry when I hear somebody on TV talking about how we're dealing with uh, domestic terrorism for the first time in our nation's history after 9-11. They said, we grew up with terror. We had to worry about being bombed and lynched and menaced every day of our lives. And it actually provokes them that our nation is capable of fighting a war on terror, sending troops and spending billions to confront the threat posed by terror when our nation did nothing, while millions of people... African American people were being terrorized and traumatized by this violence, where they were sending away their loved ones because they couldn't feel safe and secure. And so accountability is at the heart of this. How do we recover from something so brutal, so tragic, so devastating as the legacy, as the evidence of of
0: brutal violence that is presented by these lynchings. Mm -hmm. You know, a dear friend of mine, Joe McLean, who is deeply involved in democratic politics, when nooses were found at the National Museum of African American History and Culture, uh, he sent in an op-ed piece, sent it to me, and said, what do you think of this? It was one of the most powerful pieces I had ever read by a white Southerner, and the headline was, Hey, boy, want to go see A Hanging? it was his grand, his grandfather said that to his father when his father was a child, and they went to see this lynching. Fast forward, they know the name of the, the person who was lynched. They um, got together uh, relatively recently to memorialize mm. his lynching. Mm. And Joe said something interesting, and it gets to your thing about accountability, and that was... No one really talked about it, but he believes that the reason why his father and he are so committed to Democratic Party politics and to electing people who do the right thing was just sort of the implicit lesson learned from bearing witness to something so barbaric.
1: Yeah, well, I think that. Um, exposing, exposing a family or exposing a community or exposing a county to this kind of violence is going to create real injury. Uh, there is no justification for burning someone alive, hanging someone, brutalizing someone in this way. And I do think there is a kind of scarring that takes place. And that's why I, I really continue to believe that none of us Uh, is free in this country. We're all burdened by our history of Mm -hmm. racial inequality. It's created a kind of smog that we all breathe in and it has prevented us from being healthy. And when we put out a report on lynching in 2015, we got hundreds of letters and emails and calls from African-Americans whose family members uh, had been lynched and they desperately wanted to talk about it. And we sort of expected that. It was much more than we expected. What we didn't expect were the hundreds of calls and letters we got from white Southerners who talked about family members who would brag about having been involved in the lynching. Uh, White Southerners who remembered being taken as children to the sites of this brutality and how it's haunted them. And we are all haunted by this history. We've just practiced silence so long. No one has been willing to speak. And as long as we participate... You know, and, and the, for me, what's analogous is, is, is something like child abuse and sex abuse. For decades, children in this country who were sexually abused uh, were encouraged to not talk about it. And they had to bear the trauma and the grief and the burden of that bu- abuse by themselves. And it often left them vulnerable to doing things that were destructive themselves. And what we've learned about abuse and how to help people recover is that we've got to create safe spaces for people to talk about it so that people can hear you did nothing wrong. You're not responsible for that. I look at domestic violence. 50 years ago, uh, we didn't deal with domestic violence very thoughtfully. If a woman complained about being abused by her husband, there was no likelihood in many communities that that man was going to be arrested. We just didn't think it was a big deal. Our attitude was, well, if you chose to get into a relationship with someone who abuses you, shame on you, that's your fault. And police would show up, we wouldn't make these arrests. But then we started listening to the voices of abused women and our consciousness changed. And today, even our private, even our star athletes, if they are accused of domestic violence, Um, they're going to face consequences that they would not have faced 10 years ago. And this consciousness raising, this narrative shifting, is key to an increased shamefulness, awareness, um, about child abuse and sex abuse and domestic violence. And we haven't done that when it comes to the history of racial inequality. In fact, we've done the opposite. We've actually created a false narrative about how wonderful and glorious this stuff was
0: talking about the 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 white people you've heard from who you know are haunted mm-hmm. by these things one of the things um i just want to put out there is that in addition to people posing for pictures they sent postcards yes um and in in you talked about earlier about how you know the bodies would be cut up people would save pieces yes of the of the victims yes. as mementos yes so this yes. was a macabre absolutely. brutal
1: absolutely well black people were thought of as game i mean that commodification of african americans that takes place during slavery you're not human you're something else the slave catalog that we have in our museum on display the title of it is what shakes me it says negroes mules carts feed And there is this inability to see the humanity of people because of their color. And posing with these battered bodies uh, was like posing with the the big fish you caught, the game you slaughtered, and uh, carving up part of that as a totem of your um, accomplishment, your achievement in taking the life of a black person just speaks to this horrific bigotry, this horrific disease that has so infected our nation. And it's why I think it's necessary for there to be treatment. A lot of people have assumed that somehow this stuff is just going to evaporate, it'll go away. With enough black achievement, all of these things will dissipate. It doesn't work Like a black president. Like a black president, but it doesn't work that way. It's a disease and we're not going to get healthy, we're not gonna get well until we treat it. And you can't treat it by ignoring it. You can't treat it with silence. You gotta talk about it, you gotta confront it, you gotta acknowledge it. And something transformational has to happen. But that won't happen while we pretend this wasn't a big deal.
0: One of the one of the things now that I think of it, um, you know, we sort of pretend that the reason why African Americans moved en masse from the South to the North was because, well, the slaves were freed, and so then African Americans decided we don't have to be on the plantations anymore, so we're just going to move north, and that is not.
1: Why? No, it is absolutely not. 90% of the African American population at the beginning of the 20th century lived in the deep south. What they knew was agriculture. What they knew uh, were the skills and trades that are associated with an agrarian economy. Uh, so this region offered them the best opportunity to develop and take the skills they had developed during enslavement and turn them into to jobs, to ways to support their families. They were holding on to that, Uh, and then the terror started, then the threats started, then they were disenfranchised, then they were marginalized, and then they were menaced. And it was only after being threatened and menaced and terrorized that black people fled. And they went to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland, not as immigrants seeking new economic opportunities, but they went there as refugees and exiles from terror. And in the United States, in the international context, we realize now that when we're dealing with a refugee population, as, a, as opposed to just an immigrant population, there are special needs that have to be addressed. But we didn't do that in the urban north and west. We actually uh, segregated people into ghettos, and we denied them opportunities that other people got. Uh, and this uh, movement from the south to the north didn't actually create freedom. It just created a little bit more security. And the tragedy of that uh, migration, that exodus, if you will, is that families were separated. Uh, The opportunity to create wealth was lost. Uh, The skills that had been developed for generations were no longer relevant, useful in the urban north and west. And we devastated the ability of African-Americans in this country to do what other immigrant populations had done, which is to work hard and acquire wealth. Black people worked hard and they were lynched for it. They worked hard and they were forced to leave for it. They worked hard and they were disenfranchised and humiliated for it. And that story hasn't been told and the consequence of that bigotry hasn't been acknowledged. Uh, And in fact, what we do is say, oh no, black people, they don't work that hard. They're not this, they're not that. We continue to develop these narratives about some deficit in the African-American community. When, when you think about it, when you really think about it, how enslaved black people got their emancipation and chose to work with those who had enslaved them, chose to find a way to do business, chose to find a way to forgive their enslavers, to live in peace and harmony. And despite that heroic choice, were mistreated for it were disenfranchised for it, and then they were terrorized for it. And even in the midst of terror and lynching, black people weren't calling for vengeance. They weren't calling for violence and and revenge. They were just calling for peace and security. And during this period of civil rights, you know, we're here in Montgomery, Alabama, I think about it more and more, the incredible courage, because when you understand the legacy of lynching, and the violence that people face, you have to think differently about what Claudette Colvin did on the Montgomery bus, what Rosa Parks did on the Montgomery bus. By resisting segregation, they were risking their lives. They were saying, I'm prepared to die for freedom. And we haven't acknowledged that. And while they fought for freedom, freedom that should have been given to them at the very moment they entered this country, they were saying, but we're not gonna do anything violent. We still love you. We still care about this country. And uh, it, it saddens me that um, African Americans, when they express their pain, when they protest about police violence, when they question inequality, when they raise issues of bondage and discrimination, African Americans are seen as not patriotic. I can't identify a race of people in this country who are more committed to the health of this country, who believe more in the Constitution, who believe more in equality and liberation and fairness to everyone else than black people. Because despite the brutality, despite the hate, despite the violence, we keep saying, let's find a way to move forward. And it's a remarkable story uh, of a, a community of people who desperately just want peace And that's why we have that quote at the beginning of the memorial. They understand, however, that peace is not the absence of tension. What African Americans understand is that peace isn't the absence of tension, it's the presence of justice. And we have denied black people justice for centuries. And that's what all of us, many of us are
0: saying. We just need to get to that justice thing for real. Well, let's talk about the museum and the the memorial. And in, um, I believe it was the 60 Minutes interview, you were talking about African Americans, and I think this quote sort of weaves perfectly into the museum and the memorial, where you said that they were promised freedom after emancipation, but what they got was terror and lynching. They were promised security, and what they got was segregation and apartheid and humiliation. And then they were promised equality, and what they got was mass incarceration. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, yeah. I think I almost got it, yeah. got it down. In the Legacy Museum here in Montgomery, you weave that that story, that history. Talk about the museum.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I just think we haven't created narrative museums. This is intended to be a narrative museum. I went to Johannesburg to the Apartheid Museum, and it was one of the first narrative museums I'd ever been to because it tells the story of apartheid. And it's a challenging cultural experience. Uh, when you buy your tickets, you get assigned a ticket that either says white or colored, and you're required to go through the door that your ticket permits. And I went with three Scandinavian white human rights activists, and we all got tickets that said white, and they didn't want to go through the white door. They felt ashamed to, to kind of participate in that. So they went back to this black South African woman working, and, said, oh, and they said, well, we want a different ticket. We want a colored ticket. And she said, no, it doesn't work like that you take that ticket and you go into the Apartheid Museum, or you can go back where you came from and you can tell people you were unwilling to confront the legacy of Apartheid. And then she kind of slammed her door, it was powerful. <laughs> wow. And, and you know that discomforting uh, begins even before you step inside and there are spaces in that museum where you see the nooses hanging. And I began to think about how in this country we don't have museums like that. We don't tell the story. And I've been to the Holocaust Museum here in America, and it's a powerful institution. And when I go through that museum at the end of it, I am motivated to say, never again. And then I realize that we haven't created spaces in this country that tell the history of racial inequality, of slavery, of lynching, of segregation, that motivate people to say never again. And because we've never made that commitment, we keep replicating and institutionalizing and introducing new forms of bigotry and discrimination. So our vision for the museum was to kind of create that narrative museum, to tell the story of slavery, to make it human. That's the other thing. Most people don't actually have a visual of slavery that upsets them. They don't have an optic about people who are enslaved that exposes the brutality of it. If we have any optics at all, if we have any pictures at all, they're tranquil. We dress enslaved people up. We make it seem as if they're happy. People actually debate whether black people were better off during slavery. Still. Still. Michelle Obama gave a talk at the Democratic National Convention. She talked about living in a house built by slaves, just as an historical reference. She was attacked for it. And that phenomenon is a consequence of our cultural complicity and not educating people about the brutality of it. So when you come into our museum, we want folks to see the human figure in chains. We want them to encounter the bondage and read the first person narratives. It's a first person voice museum. We put on the walls and on the banners, uh, the voices of enslaved people, the slave narrative texts, which we really spent a lot of time with, which are incredibly rich. They're beautifully written. These are enslaved people who get freedom and then write about their experience. And they were really incredibly powerful. But those texts create a very different picture of what slavery is. And you hear from women, um, one of my favorite quotes from one of the slave narratives, this woman who was enslaved says, selling is worse than flogging. She said, I've been beaten many times, and my back is always healed. They took my husband away, and my heart is not right yet. And this consciousness about the trauma of separation, you know, and we create a warehouse, we replicate the slave pens that you could find in Montgomery. And uh, we tell people that you're standing on the site of a former warehouse where people were enslaved. And when you go into that part of the museum and you see those pins, I think a lot of people think, oh, they've replicated slave pins, isn't that interesting? But as you approach and you get closer, that's when the ghosts of enslaved people emerge. And they begin to tell their stories and we use those holograms to um, present visitors with the stories of of tragedy, of, of loss and we have uh, these amazing performers in one of the pens singing. And, you know, those Negro spirituals that sometimes you hear, you know, high school choirs in the Midwest singing joyfully, just have a different resonance. Uh, When you hear somebody uh, singing, Lord, how come me here, but they're in a pen with chains on, it has a different resonance when someone sings, this may be the last time because they're worried if they'll ever see their children again, it has a different resonance. And we wanna create that relationship to the suffering and it's challenging, but it's necessary. And when people come out of that part of the exhibit, we present them with the slave catalogs uh, and the slave narratives and the iconography, of the slave auction posters, which you would see everywhere. And the fugitive slave um, Uh, rewards being posted. And then last but not least, the heartbreaking ads that emancipated black people put in the newspaper when emancipation come desperately trying to find their children, trying to find their loved ones. And for me, it just kind of forces people to engage in a, a new kind of relationship with the institution of slavery. It's a discomforting one. It's
0: a disruptive one, but a necessary one. You know, there was one thing that I learned from the very first panel that I think a lot of people will be shocked to learn, that there is a distinction between the transatlantic slave trade and the domestic slave trade. In school, you're like, slavery slavery, and it was over, and the Civil War came, because the Civil War came, and it's done. And that's not the case at all. The transatlantic slave trade ended
1: when? In 1808. Uh... Congress bans the transatlantic slave trade at the early part of the 19th century. And, and you're absolutely right, and your um, insight into that is so important. We prefer to talk about the transatlantic slave trade because that involved Africans, and that, that involved Europeans, and that involved other countries. Everybody was complicit. Uh, and somehow we think that insulates us uh, from the shame that we would otherwise experience. but that Congress actually banned the transatlantic slave trade in 1808. It's the domestic slave trade that populated the American South. Uh, Most states in the American South weren't states in the the 18th century. Alabama didn't become a state until 1820. Mississippi didn't become a state until the 19th century. Louisiana, Arkansas, these places were relatively new states in the 19th century. They didn't have any enslaved people here. It's the domestic slave trade that brings a million enslaved people from the Mid-Atlantic and North to the Deep South. And enslaved people were transported first by land. They would be forced to walk a thousand miles in chains. And then they were brought... Were they they arrested? Were they kidnapped? Were they... How was that possible? They were sold. So as slavery begins to become less acceptable in the Mid-Atlantic and the North... Slave owners don't want to lose the investment they've made in their property. Oh,
0: right, right, right. So
1: they're desperately trying to sell them uh, farther south, and uh, they do, and they are paraded, marched down by by foot. Then they're uh, shipped down by boat, and and enslaved and people would come up the Alabama River to the dock, a couple blocks from where we're sitting. Uh, and then in Montgomery, Montgomery becomes a very prominent slave trading space because of a rail line. Uh, the state used slave labor to build a rail line that connected Montgomery to Columbus and then to the to the Mid-Atlantic, It was one of the only Deep South communities that had a continuous rail line. And so then every day hundreds of enslaved people would show up here. And uh, that domestic slave trade is what created this... Uh, mass transference of um, enslaved black people. And then uh, what was also unique about America is that uh, if you were black, you were born a slave. Uh, The plantation owner believed that he owned your infant children and could sell them and do with them whatever he chose to do. And uh, yeah, the domestic slave trade is an important component of this story because in many ways it was uh, as barbaric and perhaps in some ways more barbaric uh, because 50% of enslaved people were separated from their children, their loved ones, their parents, their siblings during the domestic slave trade. And that uh, injury to the heart might have been more devastating than any injury that could be imposed on the body.
0: The Legacy Museum takes you from slavery to lynching to segregation, and then, I'm not going to say ends, because the story continues, mass incarceration. Yeah, It's meant to show the line, the That's direct right. line from slavery all the way to mass incarceration. For the person who might be hearing this for the first time and thinking oh, now come on, what does slavery have to do with mass incarceration? Explain it.
1: Yeah, well, I I don't think the, the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude or forced labor. I really believe that the true evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created to justify it. We said that black people are not people. They're not fully human. They're not evolved. The United States Supreme Court accepted that we're three-fifths human. And this ideology of white supremacy that we created to justify slavery. You know, slave owners didn't want to feel immoral. They didn't want to feel like they were doing something inhumane. So they said, no, these black people need to be slaves. We're helping them by enslaving them because they're not evolved, they're not moral. And that ideology of white supremacy for me was the true evil of American slavery. And if you read the 13th Amendment, which is passed in 1865, it talks about ending involuntary servitude and ending forced labor, but it doesn't say anything about ending this ideology of white supremacy. And because of that, I don't think slavery ends in 1865, I think it evolves. And that's the thesis you see in our museum. Slavery evolves into this era of lynching and terrorism. It's the reason why nobody cares that thousands of black people are being hanged and drowned and beaten and burned to death on the courthouse lawn while thousands cheer. It's because we have this ideology of white supremacy. We have this narrative of racial difference that that victimization doesn't matter. And then it evolves into this period of Jim Crow and segregation. I mean, how could we have possibly believed it was sensible to say, you can't love that person because of the color of their skin. You can't play baseball with that person. You can't uh, go to a social event with that person. You can't go to church with that person. We have statutes on our museum uh, wall that talk about how even prisons were racially segregated. Even white felons and criminals uh, had to be protected from the scourge of integration. And that consciousness can only be explained when you understand this continuing, persisting narrative of racial difference. And then we passed the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and we still don't end this narrative of racial difference. We still live today in a country where if you are black or brown, you are going to be presumed dangerous and guilty in certain situations. And it doesn't matter how kind you are, it doesn't matter how hardworking you are, it doesn't matter how talented you are, these two young men in a Starbucks in Philadelphia get arrested by the police simply because they are black. They're being presumed dangerous. And I'm a lawyer, I'm a practicing lawyer for a long time. I go into court sometimes, I have my suit and tie on, I'll sit down at defense counsel's table, and I've had judges come out and say, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway, you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I have to apologize, I have to say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself, my name is Brian Stevenson, I am the lawyer. And then the judge will laugh, and the prosecutor will laugh, and I'll make myself laugh, because I don't want to disadvantage my clients. And the burden of this presumption, which manifests itself in our criminal justice system, where people are wrongly accused or wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced, is the reason why we can't talk about slavery, terrorism, segregation, without talking about mass incarceration, without talking about police violence, without talking about this contemporary presumption of dangerousness and guilt that continues to burden black and brown people. And we live in a country today where one in three black male babies is expected to go to jail or prison and nobody cares, nobody's talking about it. It's not a political issue, it's not a campaign issue. And it is the same indifference to a crisis impacting African American communities that existed during the time of segregation, that existed during the time of lynching, that existed during the time of slavery. And if we don't wake up, if we don't challenge that indifference, there'll be new manifestations 50 years from now, 100 years from now, and part of the vision for me of this museum is I want to create a country where 100 years from now black and brown people are not presumed dangerous and guilty, where we acknowledge this history, where we recover from it, where we don't want to celebrate the mid-19th century by talking about how glorious and romantic it is by simply ignoring slavery, where we don't talk about how great our country has been uh, without acknowledging this hardship, this brutality. And I just think we're not going to
0: get there until we create spaces like this museum. One of the things you've said is that um, one of the sort of evolutions is that lynching went underground. Yeah. yeah. And so instead of the sort of public spectacle of putting black people to death for unbelievable things like the person we're looking to lynch isn't here so we're going to lynch you and your brother which is one of the things I saw at the memorial which we'll talk about in a minute quickly talk about how lynching went underground. Yeah
1: well I mean you know it's after World War II it's in the 1930s where the optic of America fighting for freedom in Europe became really disingenuous and it was actually uh, Nazi Germany and the communists that began saying, well, how can you claim to be fighting for freedom and equality when you treat your black people this way? And these lynchings became just uh, irrefutable evidence uh, of a hypocritical America. And uh, the federal government began saying to these state governments, you know, we've got to do something about this lynching. It just looks bad. We're not saying it's, it's immoral, but it just kind of looks bad. So what can we do? And what the South begins to do is to promise the mob that they will have their death, they will have their battered body. We just have to do it indoors. And so lynching moves out from outdoors to indoors. We have these sham trials that last a few hours. And then we hang the person, then we execute the person. The death penalty is the stepchild of lynching. It's the same lethal violence. It's shrouded by the same kind of unreliability and racial bias. Uh, 87% of the people executed for the crime of rape between 1930 and 1972 were black people uh, convicted of raping white women. It's the same narrative. And it goes inside where it's no uh, more credible, no more just, no more fair, um, but it has the veneer of legality, of, of criminal justice. And that's the criminal justice system that we're still dealing with, because at no point have we repented for that corrupt criminal justice system, that perversion of criminal justice, that racist criminal justice. We haven't repented, we haven't acknowledged, we've just actually magnified it. We go from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 to 2.3 million people in jails and prisons today. We've just expanded it. And that's why you cannot look at our country which has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, which is the most punitive society on the planet, which is now created in an environment where 70 million Americans have criminal arrests and understand what we are doing and are silent about what we're doing without understanding this line from slavery uh,
0: to terrorism to segregation. In, in the Legacy Museum, you have 320 jars. Yeah. Uh, filled with dirt yeah. from the counties where documented lynchings have happened. Yes. That is a direct line to what's the shorthand is the lynching memorial, mm-hmm. but it really is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice. Yeah. Where did the idea come from? For, for this memorial? And describe what people would yeah, see sure. when they go to it.
1: Well, when we did our slavery report, we decided to put up markers at the sites where the slave trade was most active here in Montgomery, because this is a city with 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy and not a word about slavery. And, and just getting people to kind of see the word slavery or enslavement was critical. And I was really moved by how um, energizing it was to African-Americans, to people in this community, and actually by a lot of others who just said, finally, we're acknowledging, we're telling the truth. And so we began to see the power of public monuments and public markers. We started a project to put markers at various lynching sites. And the difficulty is, is that with 4,000 spread out all over the country, it would take a really long time to to achieve that. And that's when the idea of having a single location, a single space where we could memorialize all of these lynchings emerged. And that was the genesis of the National uh, Memorial for Peace and Justice. We had already started going to lynching sites, inviting community members to have them uh, collect this soil. And the 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 soil project really just grew out of a out of a desire to give people something to do in the face of this grief and the face of this trauma and the first time we did it was mostly African-Americans who came and they went to lynching sites and they collected soil, they put them in a jar with the name of the victim and the date of the lynching and then they bring it back and we ask them to make a reflection and then the next time we do it the the group got more diverse Uh, and and now when we do these things we'll have hundreds of people, black and white people and they'll go to these sites and they'll dig this soil and it's tangible and what I loved about soil is it's such a powerful medium because in that soil is the sweat of the enslaved. In that soil is the blood of those who were lynched and terrorized, the tears of those who were humiliated and segregated. But also in that soil, we can grow something. We could actually plant something that becomes beautiful, that nurtures us, that sustains us. And that idea was part of the memorial as well. And so we decided to just create a place here in Montgomery that would become the national memorial. And the... um, naming these unnamed victims was a big part of it. Um, Identifying the counties and the places where this violence took place was a big part of it. But we wanted to tell the whole story. So when you walk into our memorial, after you see that quote from Dr. King, uh, you begin a path. And I was at the Holocaust Memorial in Berlin, and I was struck by, when you go there, there are no words, that a massive... Sculpture it near Brandenburg Gate is just—it's very powerful. It is. I,
0: I've I've been there. Yeah. it is extremely powerful and yeah. actually now reminiscent.
1: Yes, you get in there. But what's interesting about that is, um, people come with their own narratives about the Holocaust. They actually trust visitors to know enough about the Holocaust to have the kind of experience that is intended. We realize that we couldn't do that here. People don't have a narrative about racial terror lynchings. They don't actually understand that history. And so when you walk into our site, you walk along this path where we narrate the history. We talk about the domestic slave trade. We talk about, and you can't understand lynching until you understand slavery. And so the first thing you encounter is a sculpture, a slavery sculpture that was, um, made by a West African artist named Kwame Okoto Bamfo. It's such a powerful piece of art. And it's, um, it's black people in chains. It's black people in anguish. It's black people in bondage. It's black people who are struggling to get free. But the other thing that he communicates is, uh, is that he shows the bondage and the suffering and the struggle, but he also shows the strength and the humanity and the dignity and the capacity to endure. He calls it unchinchim, which is um, from an African proverb. And it means uh, the capacity to endure, to overcome, the, the capacity to be resilient in the face of suffering and inequality. And when you see that, it sobers you. And you continue down that path, and then you make the turn. And that's when you see the memorial square, which contains 800 um, six-foot monuments, um, they're, they're uh, corten steel. And we went through a lot of uh, metals and a lot of uh, options, and, and you know, some of the folks were presenting us things, oh, it should be pristine and beautiful. And we said, you know, it really shouldn't, uh, because this is an ugly, painful, difficult history. And these corten steel monuments, when they arrive, they're silver And uh, they oxidize when it rains, they actually begin to change color and they all become this uh, array of brown Mm -hmm. and red and and dark and and it looks like the African-American community and we engrave the names of victims. Uh, every county where lynching uh, took place is identified. And when you walk through, they're at eye level. You have an intimate relationship with these monuments.
0: And they, and they never touch the ground. Yes, exactly,
1: that's right. They never touch the ground. Even at that first level, they're up uh, a, a few inches. And is
0: that that's to mimic the, yes. the being hanged. That's, mean, right,
1: so. that's right, that's and, right. And the sense of it just intensifies. So you finish the first corridor, and then you get into the second quarter where the f- floor begins to slope downward and the, and the monuments begin to rise. And um, as you get to the end of that corridor and you turn the third quarter, you realize now that you're standing under hundreds of these figures and that violence and that terror and that trauma has been lifted above you. You're under it, it shadows you, you can't escape it. And, and, and I think some people thought, oh, when I was going through corridor one, I'll be happy to get just kind of a little more distance between these things where I don't have to touch them. But when you get into these other corridors, when they're just above you, uh, I think for most people it's even more ominous. And we introduce in that corridor the stories. We want people to understand why or how these, these tragedies happened. And they're heartbreaking. You know, Mary Turner complained about her husband being lynched. And they came back and they lynched her too. Uh, people were lynched because um, their son-in-law wasn't present, some family member wasn't present. And um, all of that violence is difficult but necessary to absorb. When we get down to the end of that quarter, we, we say something. We felt like we had to say something. And we dedicate this space for the hanged and the drowned and the beaten. But then we talk about the need to stay hopeful because hopelessness is the enemy of justice. We talk about the need to stay brave because uh, change requires courage. We talk about the need to be faithful because that's the way we overcome. And then in that fourth quarter, we have a water wall, and you see the water coming down, which is intended to kind of suggest something um, aspirational. And you leave the monument square, and then you enter into the monument park. And we have those amazing words. We I, I reached out to Toni Morrison, who, who granted us permission to use these amazing words from Beloved, that powerful section where she talks about, they do not love your neck unnoosed. And so you've got to love it. They don't love your your liver. They don't love your, your, your limbs. Uh, you've got to love it. And then she says, uh, they don't love your heart, but you've got to love it because that's the prize. And with that Exhortation with that inspiration, you enter the Monument Park where now the monuments are horizontal. Uh, they're positioned like tombs that the, have they been look, a sale. They
0: look like coffins. Yes, exactly. And it doesn't hit you because when you come in, they're just as you described. They look like monuments, but then when you get into the park and they are on their their sides, you realize these These are coffins yeah. with the county name, yes. and if there's a victim, yeah. the name, the date they were lynched, the at the bottom is the county and this and the state again, yeah. yes. and this park is filled That's with right. these. That's right. How many of them are there, and what's the significance?
1: There's over eight hundred and twenty, and we've put them there because they are there to remind us of the grief and the loss and the sorrow, but they are also there as a invitation, because we are calling on counties, each of these counties, to begin a process of truth-telling, a conversation. And we want them to come and claim their monument. And when communities come to us and present to us this commitment to erect the monument someplace in their community, we give it to them. So in five years, we hope to see many of those monuments gone. And that space will become a sort of report card on which communities have confronted this history, which communities have claimed their monument. Because you have to give people something to do. We don't want to just present them with all of this without um, without a challenge, without a request. And our request is that we begin to localize this discourse that people will have when they come to Montgomery. When you come out of the Monument Park, that's where we have... Another sculpture by Dana King, guided by justice, and it's three women who are walking, uh, some burdened, some elderly, one woman pregnant, but they're walking nonetheless because they're determined to not ride the buses of Montgomery in 1955 as a commitment to greater freedom. It's the Montgomery bus boycott, the women who made it successful, made it possible. and And that community, where that Memorial is, is at the heart of the African-American right. community that made the boycott successful. And then as you continue on, you, you you see a final sculpture by Hank Willis Thomas, and it's just these figures with their arms raised, and it speaks to this moment of uh, continuing menace, continuing threat for people of color. Raise Up is the final sculpture. And then you end with this amazing um, poem that we had commissioned from Elizabeth Alexander, Alexander called Invocation where she talks about both the, the weight of our past but the promise of our future. Um, and it is a challenging place, but I hope visitors will find it uh, to be an inspiring place, a place where you'll leave um, motivated to say never again.
0: The honesty of both the museum and the memorial harkened me back to the first time I visited the Holocaust Museum in yeah, Washington yeah. and just how powerful it was to be told History, unvarnished and truthfully—none yeah. of the gauzy, euphemistic language. Here's what happened. Here's who did it. And here's how we can—here's what, what we can do to not have it happen again. Um, when I went to Berlin and I went to the memorial there, just beyond the Brandenburg Gate. And the, the name of the memorial is like the 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 National Museum for the Murdered Jews, Murder yeah. Jews yeah, of mean. Europe. I mean, they hit you in <laughs> right. the face. You cannot get around yeah. it. Yeah. And that's, to me, that was so powerful to be told history truthfully yes. and honestly yes. um, and even brutally yes. in order to get you to understand. Yes. Yeah. And so in seeing both the museum and the memorial, I think that's what sort of hit me is that there's no sugar here. No. If you come here, you are, you are, whether you want to or not, are going to be confronted and you will learn. Yes, that's right. And I'm
1: inspired by what they've done in Germany. I mean, you can't go a hundred meters in Berlin without seeing markers or stones or monuments right. placed next to the homes of Jewish families. And what inspires me about that is that in Germany, people don't want to be thought of as Nazis and fascists for the rest of their lives, for generation after generation. They're trying to change the narrative. And because they talk about the Holocaust, because it's a country where you don't see Adolf Hitler statutes, where there is no uh, effort to glorify and romanticize that effort, uh, that his era, uh, I'm comfortable going there. Uh, In Rwanda, it's the same thing. The Genocide Museum in in Rwanda, they have human skulls in there. And for a lot of people, they say that's just crazy. But people so desperately want to express their grief, they feel the need to do that. And I think that It's a pathway to recovery. When we say uh, we did something wrong, when when we own up to our history of violence and abuse and tyranny and enslavement, when we do that, then the opportunity for redemption is born. That's how you get to recovery. That's how you get to restoration. That's how you get to reconciliation. It begins with telling the truth. In most faith traditions, you can't just show up and say, I've never done anything wrong, but I want salvation. (laughs) You have to acknowledge this need because it doesn't take, it doesn't resonate, it doesn't stick, it doesn't land. And in this country, we have developed a really bad habit of never saying, I'm sorry. And it leaves us uh, incomplete as human beings, incomplete as a nation. Because apology isn't just something you're forced to do when you've made a mistake. Apology is how you grow strong, how you become more human. You show me two people who've been in love for 50 years, I'll show you two people who've learned how to apologize to one another when they hurt each other, when they've done something that didn't land the right way. That's how you build something stronger. And we haven't built a very strong relationship, a very healthy relationship to our history of racial inequality. And because of that, we continue to perpetuate racial inequality. And so I hope these museums become models for what other communities do uh, to, to, to look more honestly at our past.
0: I want to take you back to a story you mentioned in this interview mm. that I let slide by, <laughs> but it gets to um, something that I've wondered in, in watching you do this work, this painful work. The courtroom story that you told of the judge, yeah, get out of I, no yeah. defendants right. at the table, and that you just have to right. suck it in, and you have to smile and for your for your client right. and everything. And it took me back to a story that you told. I believe it was in a TED Talk that you gave, where you were invited by uh, a a woman here. And Rosa Parks was coming yeah, yeah. and she wanted to hear all yeah. about it. And then she, you said, Rosa Parks told you that you would be tired, tired, tired by the work you were undertaking here at the Equal Justice Initiative. And then the woman who invited you said that you needed to be brave, brave, brave. Yeah. Where do you draw the strength To be brave and to not be tired when what you're doing is, it must just sap you of all kinds of, of energy.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I feel really fortunate in some ways to be doing this work in Montgomery because when you live in a place like Montgomery, when you work in a place like Montgomery, it's impossible to ignore that you're standing on the shoulders of so many people who have done so much more with so much less. You know, um, you know. I sit in this room and I look out that window and sometimes when I get really overwhelmed and really challenged, I'll look out the window and I'll think about the people who were trying to do what I'm trying to do 60 years ago. And what they had to frequently say is, my head is bloodied but not bowed. I've never had to say that. And as difficult as the task that we have to face, as hard as the work is, it's been made easier because enslaved people found a way to endure and survive. My great-grandparents were enslaved. My line is really short. My my great-grandfather was born in the 1840s. My grandmother was born in the late 1880s. And so I was raised by this woman who would be in my ear talking about the experience of slavery. And um, she lived through Uh, terrorism. She fled Virginia, went to Philadelphia after that terror, that violence forced her family uh, to leave. My parents were humiliated every day by Jim Crow segregation and yet found a way to teach me to love and not hate, to fight, to not accept that I'm less than somebody else uh, because of my color. And when I think about the kind of courage it took to do that, when I think about the kind of commitment it took to do that, I just don't feel like I'm entitled. I don't even feel like I'm allowed to say, I'm tired, I can't do this, I can't do that. I feel like I have to do it because I'm being watched by the souls and spirits of the enslaved. I really do feel that. This street, it's so historic, right? Down three blocks from here is where enslaved people were brought. They will be paraded up this street. We're on the site of a former slave warehouse. Uh, All around here are spaces where people were lynched. Rosa Parks uh, was pulled off that bus three blocks from here. Dr. King's church is this. I, I feel like I'm being watched by the souls and spirits of the enslaved, the lynched, the segregated, and with their sacrifice, with their struggle, with their heroism and their courage and their dignity, I can't actually stop. I can't not do what has to be done. And the beautiful thing is that when we actually do something that I hope is good, like this museum, that I hope is good, like this memorial, I don't just feel watched by those souls and spirits. I feel encouraged. I hear them maybe saying, okay, you keep doing that. That's a good thing.
0: Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative. Thank you so much. What an honor. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan K. Part of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.